Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Burr. Today, with China reporting the most confirmed cases of COVID-19 since the beginning of the global pandemic, with tens of millions of people under lockdown, will China's zero COVID policy still work? What impact will those lockdowns have on China's economy and the global economy? We speak with HGTV host Scott McGilvery about his new series, Scott's Own Vacation House, where he and his family are the ones looking to turn a lakefront property into their dream cottage and turn a profit. But first, we hear from a Kiev woman who fled the violence in Ukraine and has now set up shop on the Romanian side of the border and is trying to source and send much-needed equipment such as body armor to those, including her father, still on the front lines. I'm still blown away by the acts of individual courage that we've seen so far in this war in Ukraine and resilience as well that we've witnessed over the past 18 days, whether it's people on the front lines in Ukraine, people fleeing the war, the shelling, people brave enough to go out like Maria Avdieva, who we spoke to last week from Kharkiv, brave enough to go out and document what's going on with just a camera phone. And also, of course, those protesting in Russia, where the sanctions and the penalties can be severe if you are in fact caught, not to mention if you do it very publicly. We witnessed one such protest on Russian TV tonight. There's been a complete clampdown on information about uh, what's going on in Ukraine, as you may have heard, not even able to call it a war in Russia. Well, tonight, an employee of Channel One, which is the main one of the main newscasts in the country, an employee of Channel One, an editor, apparently ran onto the set of one of the country's most popular newscasts yelling, stop the war, and holding up, holding up a sign saying, they're lying to you here. Listen closely, and you'll hear in this clip, you'll hear her running onto the set. О том, как смягчить воздействие западных санкций, говорил сегодня Михаил Мишустин. На встрече со своим белорусским коллегой российский премьер подчеркнул, надо усилить сотрудничество в рамках союзного государства. А на совещании в правительстве обсуждали, как сохранить доступность лекарницы не должны пострадать от введенных Западом So apparently in the background, that is editor and station employee Maria Osyanakova. And she had pre-recorded a video message apparently saying what is going on in Ukraine is a crime. We don't know what's happened to Maria tonight, officially. In a statement to the Russian state news agency TASS, the channel said they're doing an internal check regarding, quote unquote, an incident, another act of bravery. Speaking of brave people, my next guest is one of 2.8 million people who fled the fighting in Ukraine to neighboring countries. She had to leave Kyiv. It was getting dangerous. She took her mom there. They left her father behind in Kyiv fighting. She's now on the Romanian-Ukrainian border trying to help out those, including her dad, on the front lines. And Katrina Tamina joins me now from Romania, just across the Ukrainian border. Thanks for your time tonight, Katrina. It's my pleasure. Hi. Tell me a bit about even what today looked like. What have you been doing and, and what are you trying to do to help those back home? Yeah, my today's day was uh, pretty similar as my last 10 days. I was trying to, I, I was working a lot. I'm volunteering these days and I was working on the supply chain to provide humanitarian help, humanitarian aid from my friends from abroad and to bring this aid to my friends who have stayed to protect the country, like the sleeping mats, the sleeping bags, the warm clothes. And at the same time, I work on the supply chain of body armor and helmets to supply the territorial defense forces who stay naked, literally protect, protecting my city and my country with their bodies and their bravery. So that's what I do these days. How difficult is it to try and, to try and do that kind of work? It's obviously not something you've probably done before. How, how, do, you, how do you adapt? Yeah, it's probably, it's it's 100% not what I was doing before. Um, how do I do it? I just research a lot. I research uh, what kind of um, body armor is needed. What are the standards? How do I uh, make them? Um, how do I say it? How do I cross uh, them? How do, how do I take them to Ukraine? How do I cross the border? Make them cross the border. Uh, I have read all the laws. I have... I have figured out how to do it. And then I was looking for the supplier, like the company who provides this specific helmets and body armor that fit the fighters, the warriors. And I have contacted 
I don't know, maybe 15 companies to find the body armor in stock and there is none. So I have had <laughs> a little, I don't know, sad, some sad part, but then I realized yeah. I just need to work um, like to order them and then they work on them and then they supply them to me. So yeah, it was pretty hard, but it works finally. It's very important for me to uh, supply my friends, uh, my members of my family, my father who has stayed to protect the country. And that's what I do. Like I feel that's the thing I should do to protect my country and to fight in my own way. I was going to say, because you do have family who are still there fighting, right? Yes, I do have my father that has stayed there. And I have lots of friends, my male friends who have stayed uh, to protect my city and my country. And there are actually lots of them, like 22 people, I like for now. And then I need to make this supply chain wider to, to supply more. That's it. So you've actually managed to find some of this uh, equipment that you were looking for, the body armor and the helmets. You managed to locate some at least. Yes, yes. But they are not in stock. They're like uh, you pay and then they're working on it. They do right. not have anything in stock in Europe unfortunately not for uh, private small funds like like i am right what's it i mean it, it, what a challenge and i mean what a, what's what was it like for you clearly you've left kiev uh what was the what were the last few days there like and you're still in contact i'm, I'm sure with your family and your friends yeah of course i'm still in contact with my family and my friends and everybody is still alive and that is like the best news I want to get every morning. Uh, unfortunately, not ev every family member of my friends are alive at this point. Um, but yeah, my friends and my family is still is still in contact. Um, uh, I, I did not get it. Did you ask how my first days were? I, I asked you when, when you left. Yeah. What made you decide to leave and how and, and what was that like? Yeah, that was one of the worst nights I had in my life, I think. I um, woke up, the morning the war started, I woke up to air raid, air raid sirens. And I got very scared because I got to the news and I realized the war started. So I was packing and I was thinking, like, what do I do next? I came to my family, to my parents. And I was pretty sure I will be going back home because I wanted to leave my car at my parents' place so that they use it if, he, if they want to leave. And I was not planning to leave. But that night, as I spent at my parents' place, I heard bombing. I heard air raid sirens. I had no sleep. I felt so much danger all around uh, that the morning... <laughs> When the morning began, I realized I just need to uh, make myself, uh, to put myself into some secure, secure, more secure place. Because if I die, I will not be able to help this situation. Like in any case, I just die. And if I do not die, I will be able to protect my country and to protect my life and to fight for it just yeah. if I survive first. Right. So I offered, like, I, I'm leaving, who's coming with me, and my mom decided to come with me. So we're here, and my father decided to stay. So once you arrived in Romania, um, first of all, was I guess there, you're in an area with a lot of different people from Ukraine now. But once you arrived in Romania, what was the welcome like when you got there? And what have you been able to do since you got there to, to help out back home? Okay, so the welcome was beautiful. I did not, I was not waiting for anything. I have been driving, I don't know, around 20 hours with no sleep. And then I have spent 15 hours at the border in the line. Like the day was very long. And when I entered, when we have entered Romania with my mom, we were so exhausted and so tired. And there were lots of volunteers who who knew who felt kind of felt our state because I was almost not I was not able to even speak I was so tired after all the driving and line and the volunteers have offered 
that they can find a stay for us. And they have found it very quickly. Like it took, I don't know, maybe maximum one hour, maybe, maybe even less. So we stay here at the place the volunteers have found for us. And I appreciate it a lot. People are great. And I appreciate also very much that we stay in the Ukrainian Romanian community. It is important for me to understand people and they speak my language and they feel themselves Ukrainians. So I feel like, like I'm at home almost. Almost. I'm speaking with Katerina Tumina, a Kiev resident now in Romania, right on the Ukrainian border, doing volunteer work, uh, both providing much needed supplies for those uh, for refugees coming across, I gather, and also trying to provide even more needed supplies for those still fighting back in her home city of Kiev. Uh, when we come back after this, a bit more about uh, about what she's hoping to do and also just how she's seen this conflict progress and what she hopes for the future. We'll be back with that. I'm back with Katrina Tomina, a Kiev resident now in Romania on the Romanian-Ukrainian border, uh, doing her best volunteering to try and provide much-needed supplies uh, across that border back into Ukraine, uh, both both food but also um, body armor as well as helmets, other things that uh, that the Ukrainian defense forces need as well. Uh, Katrina, how did it come about that you that you were that you found a way to start volunteering, and what? And what have you been trying to do? Okay, I'll start from the very beginning. Sure. Uh, when I was when I left Kiev, mm-hmm. I, uh, me, and my mom was stayed in uh, on the west side of Ukraine. First, we hoped that the conflict might end quickly. And when I arrived to the western side of Ukraine, while I was driving, I realized that I need to do something. I feel like I I need to be part of uh, of all this because I want to fight back for what was taken away from me that horrible morning. And when I ar- arrived to the western part of Ukraine, I was helping the refugees. I was sorting food. I went to the volunteer center, was organizing some stuff there uh, for for the refugees that have come to the western side of Ukraine uh, from the hotspots like Kiev, Kharkiv and Donetsk. And we have spent three days there and then the air raid sirens started where we stayed in Chernivtsi and I have spent like seven hours in the bomb shelter and that was denied. I realized that I will be able to help my country if I have the internet connection and also if I'm alive. So that night we have made the decision to cross the border and stay somewhere close by the border in case if some of our friends or other people need help. When I just arrived to Romania, I also went to the volunteer center and I helped with uh, refugees and was searching food and was the information where people should go and where are the buses and uh, looking for the shelters for them. Uh, I have spent a couple of days there and then I realized that I do not feel I'm doing enough. So uh, at the same time, I was in contact with my friends and that was the time I realized that all my beloved people, male guy, like guys who need to, who decided they want to protect the country, they went to the ter- territorial defense forces and that they do not have the body armor. And big part of my life are people of, and I need to make sure that I do the most for the people that matter a lot for me. And also I realized that if the territorial defense forces do not have the basic protection of the of their bodies, there is going to be more refugees. So I decided that I need to put all my effort into protecting those territorial defense forces. They protect me and my country and fight for my life with their bodies. And I need to fight with protecting their bodies, like a girl with a computer and with some um, some brains can do a lot i think also and that's what i do now so i do not i no longer help the refugees the humanitarian aid i helped with is for the territorial defense forces as well there are sleeping bags and sleeping mats and some warm clothes and the body armor and the helmets it's not the humanitarian aid it's the other part of my activity because like the process is more complicated to make it all work. Katrina, how is your mood about? It? I mean, this has been going on now for three weeks. I know, I know, just based on the on the adrenaline, it's it's you can work that hard for a while. But are you do you, 
how is the mood right now? Are you, and how are you looking back at home? And what are you thinking this week? Uh, the mo- I must admit that the mood is going like waves, like the, uh, they go up and down. And I also know that I'm not the, one, the only one going those waves. Um, I, I talk to my friends and I'm also in some volunteers chats. But um, what I think, what I used to think is that the conflict should have ended faster. I no longer feel like it. I feel like we all need, like the Ukrainians, we all need to make sure we can stand for the next couple of months. Um, I, I think that it should end in the next couple of months. I hope so. And I am very afraid that this war will be prolonged like for years and that everybody will be will get used to it and just think that ah Ukraine that's where the war is and then talk about their I don't know uh, late evening fr- uh, mm. plans mm. so this is why I do this interview I want the war to end quicker and I want the like the society like the community of the world the world people in this world to keep keep thinking keep fighting keep uh, keep fighting for peace i really do not think that it is okay in the modern world to just bomb a country like what kind of act is it if we as a world community decide that this is okay that i really do not want a world like this so i contribute in a better world in my way katrina tamina thank you so much for your time tonight and keep up the great work i appreciate uh, you taking some of your very busy day to speak with me thank you for offering i appreciate it very much i hope it helps my country and me and my friends to get back to uh, our normal life and i also feel um so much passion about coming back to Ukraine and rebuilding the country from the ashes. And that is also one of the moods I regularly feel from my friends. This is the times when we no longer want to flee Ukraine. We want to come back and rebuild it and build a beautiful country. One of the odd things about the pandemic is that oftentimes we pay very little attention to what's happening in other parts of the world, specifically when it comes to stuff like mandates and protections and so forth. So while the big debate here obviously has been about when provinces are lifting COVID-19 protections, how, and so forth, in Hong Kong, there has been an absolutely terrifying outbreak of COVID, um, mostly attacking an elderly population that was under-vaccinated. And then now, in the last few days, China has begun to report quite an increase in COVID-19 cases. Today, more than 5,000. That is the most there reported since the pandemic began. So the response, of course, for all those here who talk about freedom, the response there, of course, tens of millions of people are under lockdown in China tonight. Uh, Again, as the country copes with the most serious outbreak of COVID-19 since the beginning of the pandemic, and one that has spread to several parts of the country. So what does that mean? China's ordered the entire province of Jilin up north near the North Korean border, 24 million people into lockdown. The southern finance and tech hub of Shenzhen near Hong Kong, massive place, used to be tiny in the early 80s, massive now, 17 million people under lockdown. That includes companies such as Foxconn, which produce iPhones for Apple. Their workers are all at home. They've shut down for the week. So as China continues to enforce these strict zero COVID rules, of course, I didn't mention everyone's being tested in those places. What impact could it have on its economy? And by that, with supply chains already stretched thin, we've been talking about this for months now, what impact could it have on the rest of us? Those are some serious questions to answer tonight. And joining me to do so is Yan Zhong Huang. He's a senior fellow for the Global Health at the Council on Foreign Relations and a professor at Seton Hall University's School of Diplomacy. Professor Huang, thanks so much for being here tonight. Thanks for having me, Ben. It has been, I mean, the headlines we've seen emerge out of China over the weekend in connection with the COVID, with with the pandemic, are things we probably haven't seen in a long time. Just how serious is it? Well, I think it's 
fail to say, well, this is the worst outbreak since Wuhan in early 2020. Right? So over the past two years, China has been able, uh, through a very stringent zero COVID strategy, uh, contain the spread of COVID-19. Uh, but now we're seeing suddenly, uh, since early March, but the spike of cases uh, in multiple cities in the country. And we've seen some some very severe measures as well, perhaps not as severe as when Xi'an was locked down before the Olympics, but Shenzhen, a city of 17 million, locked down. Um, the reaction has been very swift. Well, yeah, it's, uh, this is the actual it conforms to what they call zero clearance or zero COVID uh, or dynamic uh, zero COVID uh, policy, right? that, uh, you know, it's just diff- sort of different from the you know, this previous zero COVID strategy in that they now recognize that it's unavoidable to have, you know, small sporadic outbreaks. But, you know, the under this dynamic zero COVID strategy, I mean, once you identify, you know, several case local transmissions, immediately where well, that's going to be followed by aggressive, you know, uh, quarantine, you know, mass testing, even lockdown measures in order to uh, um, uh, contain the spread of the virus, you know, and uh, to make sure, you know, it's the uh, to sustain that extreme low level of infection. I'm going to for, for listeners who may not be familiar with just how widespread these measures are, um, they are a massive undertaking, are they not, for, for public health authorities in each of these areas to try to, to impose what, what is being asked of them? Oh, absolutely, right? The China now is arguably the, the, the only country right, that still clings to a, a draconian right, zero-tolerance strategy fighting COVID pandemic. You know, we have some, you know, maybe a very small now, like Pacific Island countries, maybe also Taiwan, or if you also include Hong Kong, that uh, pursued a zero COVID uh, approach. But in terms of the stringency, I think the mainland China is the uh, um, the, the, the the most uh, uh, stringent one. And also in terms of this, you know, this how this measures right that is apply uh, uh, applied right. You talk about right this this country of 1.4 billion people, right? And now probably more than 50 million people now under right, lockdown measures to various degrees. And testing as well, right? Uh, I know that from just from, from hearing around that there are there, are, there is mass testing going on. Well, uh, yeah, this is the uh, this is the not the, the antigen test, you know, that the, we we do here, right? Using this, you know, uh, antigen uh, uh, kits, right? That, that you can test at home. Right? This is government controlled PCR testing, right? Uh, and until recently, right, the, the uh, this is the only method what they use in in in, uh, in testing people. Right. Uh, and after while you are tested positive, right, that uh, you are found to be a close contact, right? Uh, the, uh, you know, the, the building you stay, right, that, that will also be quarantined. Mm-hmm. Um, how did it, after all these months, these many, many, many months of being able to keep the situation under control, as far as we could tell, how did it all of a sudden get away from them? Do you think? Well, I think was to do with the variant, right? the Omicron variant, as we all know, is transmissible. But more than that, right, it's also right, uh, maybe it has something to do with the mass vaccination campaign. Right, a majority of the cases, at least sixty percent of those cases identified, actually are asymptomatic ones. Right. right, so that actually reveals another problem with the mass, you know, PCR testing regime. That is, right, the, you know, typically they find cases, you know, when you show the symptoms, then go to a fever clinic, right? There, where you find, oh, you are tested positive. You know, but with that many symptomatic ones, you know, like uh, uh, very few of them probably will go to the f- fever clinic, right, to be tested. 
So when you find out when this suddenly this is the problem, it's too late, right? That uh, you know that might also explain why Shanghai, right, which is very well known for its targeted approach, flexible approach in handling COVID, now has to even also applies you know this uh, what we call soft lockdown measures, right, in the city. Has there been, or are you seeing a a less tolerant public for these sorts of measures now that we're two years in? Very good question. I think in the public support to the zero COVID uh, continue to be strong, in part because of this fear, right? That is the uh, that uh, you know, if like, COVID is allowed, you know, to uh, run rampant in the country, right? That this is going to be a disaster. Right. Uh, but, uh, you know, this excessive measures, you know, that are being uh, implemented right across the country, right, after you know, two years or also, right, I think is contributing to that fatigue uh, and the people, uh, a growing number of people, in my impression, is that they become fed up with the uh, this excessive measures, you know, that is undermining the public support in a two zero COVID strategy. How long can Beijing continue with a zero COVID strategy, especially in the face of something like Omicron? You have mentioned that they've started to adapt it somewhat, but it still feels like it's been a very rigid plan from the beginning. And there seems Mm -hmm. to be very little signs that Xi Jinping or anyone else um, in power is going to back away from this zero COVID Approach. Well, we know that the approach, right, is actually <laughs> contribute, right, to the uh, extremely low level of infection right, in China. Right? So, you know, Ch- Ch- China consider that this is a big achievement. Okay, the CPR Chinese model, right, political system, but the, you know the the cost, right, associated with implementing the strategy, right. We talk about right the separation of family members, you know, the inconvenience, you know, disruption of the supply chain, right, the out of business of the small, you know, uh, business firms, right. The, the cost also uh, is very high and become even so right now with more poor people and more. More cities being uh, affected, you know, by the, uh, the 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 new variant, and therefore also the uh, zero COVID strategy. Uh, uh, so, it uh, um, uh, you know the, that strategy in the long run, even the Chinese top Chinese public health you know experts agree that in the long run is not sustainable. I'm speaking with Yan Zhang Huang, a senior fellow for global health at the Council on Foreign Relations and professor at Seton Hall University's School of Diplomacy. He, you mentioned Hong Kong. That's what I wanted to talk about when we come back. I'm back with Yan Zhang Huang, senior fellow for global health at the Council on Foreign Relations and professor at Seton Hall University's School of Diplomacy. Uh, Mr. Wong, you did mention Hong Kong, and it's been a, those who haven't been paying, perhaps been paying a lot of attention, because here in Canada, of course, we're starting, and in the US as well, where you are, we're starting to lift a lot of these mandates, lift a lot of these restrictions, do away with a lot of these things that we had put into place. In the meantime, Hong Kong has gone through an absolutely terrifying uh, few months here. What has happened there and why? Well, I think uh, well, we, we know about that Hong Kong s- pursued a, a zero COVID approach, although to a lesser dis- disagree by right, compared to mainland China. Uh, so that the approach actually worked well. Uh, Hong Kong uh, actually is, could be considered like a poster child of zero COVID. But uh, in, in the meantime, you know, that also means that uh, the government has not, you know, had not before the fifth uh, where the outbreak, right, the um, the fifth wave, you know, they failed to uh, invest in public health surge capacity building, and uh, also by uh, the uh, uh, they failed to right, you know, make uh, um, uh, um, significant efforts to uh, e- uh, to vaccinate the elderly. Uh, in Hong Kong. So the vaccination rate among the elderly people actually 
very low, you know, before you know the the fifth um, the wave arrived. You know, so you know this this is actually this sort of of course this complacency, but also but this this vaccine hesitancy might uh, contribute to uh, um, uh, the the extremely high. COVID uh, mortality rate uh, in the island, and also uh, overwhelmed by the, the spike of the cases and disease, overwhelmed the uh, the country's you know, healthcare system, uh, the uh, overwhelmed the territory's healthcare okay. system. Certainly, because it's on right on the border. That uh, I mean, that China, mainland China, always keeps a close eye on Hong Kong. Obviously, that this would certainly send alarm bells through through Zhongnanhai or through Beijing. Absolutely. In fact, what is happening also in Hong Kong, uh, I think is connected to what is happening now in Shenzhen, right? Because right, this, this uh, uh, in part because of that zero COVID strategy, you know, a lot of those, I think, undocumented by illegal immigrants there who were from mainland China uh, uh, couldn't afford right, to be quarantined or isolated right, in, the, uh, in Hong Kong. So some of them you know, like, uh, tried to flee the island you know that uh, I think contributed to the uh, the rise of cases in Guangdong province. I want to ask you a question about what we might see here, because of course Shenzhen is a very, very important uh, manufacturing hub, specifically high tech. Uh, it's shut down now. We saw companies shutting down their uh, Foxconn, I believe, is shut down for a week. They produce uh, everything. What sort of economic impact could we see here? Uh, especially with stretched supply chains already, what sort of impact could these lockdowns in China start to have? Do you think? Well, we know right that China was able to maintain right uh, this relatively strong economic growth in part because of the robust export sector. Right, the, well, that certainly benefited from the shrinking manufacturing capacity uh, in other parts of the world because of the COVID. Right, and now you found those, you know, the industrial hubs such as Shenzhen. Now, uh, under the lo- the lockdown, right? The, I think it's just uh, like a one week or one month, you know, that uh, could have huge implications for the global supply chain. If you also want to add the Shanghai, another by business uh, industrial center, right, in China, you know, the impact is you know, certainly is not going to be confined, right. In China. I was going to say, I guess that's one reason why it may seem like this is happening far away. We may feel the impacts and we're already dealing with the war in Ukraine. Uh, we're already dealing with supply chain issues to begin with. Inflation is high. Uh, this, this, can't be, this, this can't possibly be good for the Chinese economy, let alone the global economy. Absolutely right. I think you know they um, already right. The, the uh, beginning last summer, right? Uh, there was this the uh, uh, the government leaders are concerned about this the uh, suppressed domestic demand, right? The uh, disruption of the supply chain, the uh, uh, weakening macro econo- uh, the uh, expectations in Chinese economy because of the. Uh, this the uh, the stringent you know zero COVID uh, measures. Uh, so you know I think the situation right there is likely going to get worse. Are there any contingency plans for it though? Because one would see if Shenzhen's about to lock down for seven days and close something as big as as some of its major manufacturers of high tech goods. Uh, for instance, Foxconn, if I'm not mistaken, makes almost everything that goes into any iPhone you would ever want to purchase, along with many other things. This could have, obviously, China's China's going to be struggling to find a, a backup to this as well. Well, absolutely. I think, well, certainly for the multinational uh, corporations, when they need to uh, find a backup plan, I, I believe they're doing so, uh, to my knowledge. You know, but uh, you know, the, the, the thing is that for a long time, the government right, didn't have an exit strategy right, the, the, uh, uh, to prepare, right? Uh, what, is the, uh, the, 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 what is inevitable? You know, I think, you know, that is the biggest problem. Yanjong Huang, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. My pleasure. 
it seems like there really are no down days for HGTV Canada host Scott McGilvery. But it looks like this spring, or even now, is shaping up to be especially busy for the real estate expert and contractor, including a new four-part series that takes the whole idea of Scott's vacation house rules and turns it around, makes it personal. Here's a preview. I'm Scott McGilvery, real estate investor and renovator. I love it! For years, I've helped homeowners create dream vacation properties with my vacation house rules. This is the place. This time, I'm putting those rules to the ultimate test. On a rental property of my own. This is going to be a huge project. Really big. With the help from old friends and some new ones. Roll up your sleeves. Roll up your sleeves, girl. (laughs) Wow. This looks so much better. Huge change. It's time to take on my own vacation house. That's right. He's taking on his own vacation house along with his family, wife, Sabrina, daughters, Layla and Maya, all stars of this one, as they look to convert what is a very large property on Ontario's Kawartha Lakes, northeast of Toronto, and make it both a cottage for them and a profitable rental property as well. So joining me now to explain how this is all going to work is HGTV host and star Scott McGilvery. Thanks so much for being here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on the show, Ben. I was I was just reading over, you know, I always go back and read over people's bios, 300 shows that you've done now over, over the course of <clears throat> the past more than a decade at this point. Uh, how do you look back at that now? It, it seems like an incredible, incredible run to, to have done that many episodes already. It's exhausting. No, it's, uh, <laughs> sure. Honestly, I, I feel pretty fortunate about it. I would say almost, well, not quite, but uh, almost half of the renovations that we've done have been through TV shows, which is phenomenal. Um, but it, it's, we love it. Like I thrive in this space. Um, and I think you might be reading an old bio. We're probably closer to 400 episodes oh, at this probably. point, but, but yeah. that's okay. Um, we're up, we're up to 50 episodes of this show. We did 280 episodes of income property. We've done, yeah, we've done a lot of shows, but either way it's, uh, did I ever think I would do this many episodes? Absolutely not. But it just seems that people are fascinated with real estate People love to get inspired. They love design ideas, construction ideas, real estate investing tips. And uh, that's something that we we try to put into all of our episodes. How do you feel like over the course of those more than 400, you're absolutely right, over the course of those um, episodes, how do you feel like you've grown as, as both sort of a, a giver of advice, but also just as a host? <sighs> Um, I, on it, to be honest, honest, I don't feel that I've changed all that much. And I... I and I never tried to change. In fact, I always feel like a bit of an imposter in the in the t- television space or the celebrity space because it's you know I've I've been I've been married for fifteen years since you know and my wife and I were together before I started doing shows. And you'll see that the people on the shows it's like my family, it's my friends that I've had for twenty five thirty years. It's uh, this is just always who I've been. It just so happens that there's a camera filming it. And uh, um, and I like that. I like I never I'm very thankful for the things that I have. And I wasn't looking to television to to bring me anything different than what I had going on in my life. So I would say my biggest challenge has been trying to or just just staying true to who I am with all the distractions that come from being in television. Some of the temptations as well, like, do you move here and take that opportunity? And, you know, like, do you, you can move to LA and you can get paid more money, but then you're leaving, you're removing your family from your hometown and you're moving away from your friends. So it's, it's definitely been a challenge, but I feel like now more than ever, I'm super comfortable where I am. I know that I've made the right decisions. Um, I love doing the shows and I can do them. I can do them from home. I can do a media tour from home. I can invest in continue to invest in real estate the way I've always enjoyed doing it and still produce shows that help other people achieve their goals as well. So although it has been a long journey and it's not lost on me how uh, how fortunate I am to be exposed to some of these things, I would say that as a person, I probably haven't changed at all. <laughs> Same guy. That's, I mean, and therein lies the key, right? I mean, that's, that's the key. If you can do that. So if you, it's not easy to be able to do that with, with all the pressures that, I mean, I worked in TV for a long time. I was always curious watching your shows, other renovation shows. What is the one thing 
that is the hardest to do with the cameras on compared to what you used to do when you were just doing it on your own? I think that at the beginning, what I remember is the hardest thing was to like accept my mistakes, right? Nobody's perfect. And let's be honest, my, my shows, most all the shows that are on HGTV, they're pre-taped and edited. It's not live television. And at first when the cameras were rolling and something was going wrong, um, my, in my gut, I wanted to either fix it right away or, you know, find a way to edit around it in some capacity as if it was an embarrassment. But I learned that these mistakes are opportunities. They're opportunities to show people what's happening in real life. Um, They're opportunities to try something different. And I started to lean into um, these challenges and some of these moments just, just to be authentic. And it's, it's certainly, I mean, it's, it certainly brings it home to people, viewers, I think, to know that mistakes happen, that you don't have to be perfect, right? That there is, uh, that there are hits and misses anytime you take on a big project. And that brings me to your new show, which is very much turning the camera toward back towards you and your family and this new uh, cottage property that you found in the Kawarthas. Tell me a bit about, about the inspiration for this new, for this new, this new show. Yeah, well, you know, it's I think it's unavoidable as a, you know, as someone who does television, does reality television. I mean, when we say reality television, our shows are the situation is real, but there's a format to what you're seeing. Um, But more and more people want to know what's happening behind the curtain. They're like, what's what's real life like? And um, when the pandemic first started, uh, it became a real challenge for us to cast. We lost like six or seven homeowners in terms of they weren't comfortable being part of the show. Plus, we had to shut down. So timelines and then the price of material went up. It was a very challenging time to shoot our shows uh, during the pandemic. And we had to make changes and adapt. But one of the blessings in disguise came along as I had a little more free time in between filming episodes and I was looking at some properties and early days, two years ago, nothing was moving in the market. Any piece of real estate that was listed was literally frozen. Uh, There were no open houses. There was no agents going through them. So I would go and see properties on my own on the phone with the agent walking around these properties. And I went to go see this one and I thought, wow, this thing is massive. And I can just you know, we kind of saw the the wave coming for the vacation market, the short term or what I call the domestic short term vacation market. So I called my wife and I said, listen, I'm going to pick you up. I'm going to come and show you this property. I think it's it's a huge opportunity. It's really interesting. It's beautiful, like beautiful waterfront, beautiful piece of property. And I kind of had this list, this list of like 10 things that I was always looking for with a vacation property. And this had like seven or six or seven of them. And the ones that it didn't have, I knew we could do, which is making the cottages nice, uh, making some improvements to the to the landscaping, things like that. So um, we went in, we put an offer in that night, we got the property. And all of a sudden, it was, guess what, we're filming my place now. And, and that's what we did. And it, it was hard. This was a, the timing was tough. The property needed a tremendous amount of work and it's a massive property. It's got four separate lots with six different buildings on it. Everything needed renovating. And then we tried to make it all into a TV show, which always complicates it. I was going to say, you must have, there must've been times during the filming of this particular series where you felt like you'd bitten off a lot. Yeah, there was many times. And I mean, it's in the show where like, I'm just having a real conversation with my family because my wife's a teacher. It has not been an easy world for teachers for the last two years. I've witnessed it firsthand how challenging, uh, you know, life as a teacher is these days. And my wife, you know, stayed full time, whether she was remote, synchronous, asynchronous in school, she was doing all the bouncing around last minute changes and uh, meanwhile, we're trying to film and accommodate at the same time. So we were pressed. We were trying to get it all done while she was off. Uh, and, you know, when you're in a rush, the world always throws a wrench in your plans. All of a sudden, supply chain issues and labor shortages. It was totally uh, it was full of unexpected twists and turns. Um, we're still working on it, to be honest, even though it's going yeah. to air, <laughs> it's on the air now, uh, and we're still working on it. So there's still lots to do. 
I'm speaking with HGTV host and star Scott McGilvery about his new series, uh, Scott's Own Vacation House, uh, which is really fascinating. And it does, again, as you mentioned, it does it does turn the camera on you and your family and, and, and this and this incredible project that you took on to have your own place, which is, is, has so many charming elements to it. And I did want to touch on one thing that I found really touching about, uh, about watching it. Um, and we can get to that right after this. I'm back with HGTV host and star, real estate investor and contractor, Scott McGilvery, host of many programs, but including Scott's own Vacation House, which is a focuses on the, um, I guess, really the complete renovation of this massive property and several buildings in uh, in the Kawartha Lakes area, uh, north, or I guess north east of Toronto would be the right uh, way to describe it. One of the things you brought up in one of the episodes, and this, because my dad has a cottage, my dad loves his cottage, was just the family connections, why it was important to you to have a cottage and to see having a cottage as a dad and the memories that it brought back for you of your childhood. Yeah, that's uh, some of my best memories are spending time with my family when I was a kid. Um, yeah, we look back at, uh, you look back at holidays and experiences and you know, there's not a lot of them where it's like, remember the time we were at home and we did that amazing thing. (laughs) A lot of it is, you know, we went up to the cottage and we built a Quincy or we went and had a huge Thanksgiving family reunion and beautiful long weekend where we learn how to water ski or whatever it is. Like those are some of the best memories. And, um, you know, with, uh, with the way the whole world was for the last few years, not having an outlet for that put, a lot of people under the pressure to find an outlet to have experiences domestically. And I've been looking for, I've, I've been casually looking at properties for a long time in the, in the cottage market. And I've acquired a, a whole ton of um, short-term vacation rentals, but nothing that I would have considered a personal use property where this one satisfied both buckets. It was a large enough property large enough purchase because it's actually four individual properties with five different buildings, six actually different buildings on them. Um, So I saw the best of both worlds. I'm like, we can start, we can fix this up and start monetizing it. Now it's an hour and 40 minutes from the city, which is great. It's so close. And, um, and in the long term, I could see us establishing uh, ourselves in this location. So we're trying a bit of both. The first guests, our first renters show up uh, the first week of April. We've got it rented for April, May and June. Uh, and then we've kept one of the buildings, which uh, is off at the very far end, that we're going to use ourselves as well. So we're, we are really trying the best of both worlds with this place. And I loved how, how your daughters chimed in as well, because it does have that one greatest feature, which is the jump off the dock dock. You have to be able to run and jump off the dock or it's disqualified from my list. <laughs> that was top of, top of that list of 10 was that was the jump off the dock. Um, well, it's, again, it's, it's one of the, it's like a tradition anyway, for my friends and I, and even with my family growing up, before you leave the cottage, like Sunday afternoon, you, one last run and jump off the dock then you can dry off and leave. It's complete. I did get the bit. I mean, I was, I've, I've obviously watched your shows and I did get the impression, even just from watching the, the, tr- the first episode of, of this new series, that it was very personal, that it was, it comes across as being, you have the girls, you have your wife, you, you talk about your dad. Um, it was a very personal show for you. It, it's, it is a very personal show. It's my family and I, for sure. And it's, listen, life hasn't necessarily, necessarily i feel fortunate in the things that we've done as a family but life itself uh has thrown a lot of curveballs at our families in the last several years um and it's been it's been challenging we've lost uh five family members in five years and uh and it really puts things in perspective um as to how how you you know you've got to enjoy the time you have with your family and you got to make memories now. And, uh, and that's really what this show, you know, it, it is about us, of course, because it is our family, but I always hope to inspire other people and maybe show them uh, that think what is possible, right? Things that seem impossible. This is a property that nobody wanted to buy. It was impossible to fix it all up. And I, in my mind, it's like when something is hard, that's what I want to do. I want to do the hard things because it's worth it in the end. And uh, sometimes it's hard to 
uh, regroup as a family. Sometimes it's hard to, you know, extend yourself to purchase a property, but where there's a will, there's a way. And where there's an opportunity for us to monetize, which this property completely does strategically, this is a very good investment is what it is. But personally, it also satisfies a lot of the elements that we are looking for as a family. So to me, I'm like, there's at least two ways we can win with this property. Um, It's going to be hard, uh, but that's what we do. I'm like, I always say that to my kids. We're McGilvery's. We do the hard things because it's worth it. I was laughing during during the show that 1980s retro is all very good and fine and dandy in most things, but not in home decor. That was the uh, uh, looking at the place that as you were walking through. The carpeted bathrooms is what really gets gets me every time. Like, when was this a good idea to carpet around the toilet? I don't know. Hard to say. Hard to say. I guess the last question I had for you is just, you know, lots of people do watch the show for for advice. What advice do you have now? We're coming out of a pandemic. Uh, The real estate market is, you know, mind-boggling at the best of times. What advice do you have for people now who are looking to, to try and follow in your footsteps? You know what? For 20 years, I've been trying to help people achieve their real estate goals, whether it's just buying a primary residence or investing in real estate as an opportunity to generate wealth. And it's always hard. It's It was hard 20 years ago. It was hard 10 years ago. And it's hard now. And guess what? It's going to be hard later as well. It's always going to be harder to acquire real estate, in, especially in a country like Canada, where we have uh, an expanding growth. Uh, we have growth expanding like crazy. We have a huge immigration policy. There's not enough um, housing to accommodate everybody. And uh, we're looking at things like low interest rates and inflation, all pointing to the direction that housing prices aren't coming down anytime soon. So you've got to get creative. And a lot of people are getting creative now. The reason why people are buying these properties is because they know they can afford them if they can monetize them strategically. And being able to have an income generating portion of your property or a lot of these properties now, joint ventures. We're seeing siblings buying properties. We're seeing parents and their kids coming together buying properties. We even see friends pairing up together and buying properties because that's the reality moving forward is that uh, affordability isn't coming down. So creativity is going to have to go up. Scott McGillivray, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Good luck with the new show. Look forward to seeing where it all, where it all heads as the episodes progress. Thanks so much, Ben. Ben.